Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. The latest edition of the minor league baseball podcast is here. And um, I have to open by asking Sam a question. Sam sends out the uh, show rundowns every week and has clever ways of reminding it, reminding me which episode number it is this week. It says, quote, this podcast is now 100 episodes past getting its permit. Could you, did you have to be 16 to get your permit in Massachusetts? Yes. I was what? 15. How? Really? Yeah. Like not even 15 and a half. Just no, straight just up straight up 15. Oh, Cause man. I took I, driver's I... ed at 14. Really? Yeah. See, we had to get our permit and then we got our, uh, then we went through driver's wow. ed. Wow. Like I was able to get mine at 15 because I had taken driver's ed already. That's probably the smart way of doing things, to be honest with you. Not instead of just handing out a permit and saying, there's a permit, go learn on the roads. Yeah. Go on the roads (laughs) and you'll figure it out. Yeah. No, that seems safe. Um, So it is episode number 116, the age at which, wait, so when did you get your license? 16 and a half. Oh, okay. I was yeah. 16, so we're just cooler out here. Um, I know. Speaking of being cooler out here, Benjamin Hill is out here, kind of. Ben is uh, in the Mountain Time Zone. He's in the Pioneer League and the Pacific Coast League. We'll talk to Ben from Utah here coming up in just a little bit. Um, this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, as always, you can find on iTunes and on the Stitcher app and now on Google Play. We're very excited about that. Uh, so thanks to all of you who tuned in wherever you found us. And... Um, you know, it's it's good to be on a different format. I'm sure we sound great on Google Play. Yeah, I'm sure. Obviously. Uh, yeah, of course. It's the same audio quality, I think. I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know enough about Google. I want to say, like, yeah, it's it's got great. I don't know. You sound like geniuses. A, is, yeah, is I don't have a. You sound more device. authoritative on Google Play, presumably. Sure. Let's Why go not? with that. I, w- I would love to hear a sound just like and just, yeah, much more confident in ourselves on Google than we do on iTunes. <laughs> Double A Binghamton Rumble Ponies manager Luis Rojas will join the show later on. Sam got a chance to catch up with him in Hartford this week, correct? I did. I so, did. Uh, yeah, I went up there with Michael Leboff, our colleague and uh, co-worker who is who uh, we both went up there to cover Brendan Rogers' home debut in Hartford. So, uh, yeah, I got Luis for a couple minutes, and I'll uh, intro that as we get closer to it. So, episode number 116, off and running, and a big thanks to you for tuning in. If you found us wherever you found us, give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and we would be much obliged. You can get in touch with the podcast, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykes or MILB, and I'm on Twitter at Tyler Mon. And let's get started. News from the world of minor league baseball teams and leagues and relocations this week. As Actually, as of last week, this from our own Danny Wilde at MILB.com. Quote, The minor league landscape will look a little different in 2019 after an ownership group announced plans to relocate three teams on Wednesday. The AA San Antonio Missions will pack up and leave for Amarillo, Texas as part of the Elmore Group's move to shift several of its clubs in three states. The AAA Colorado Springs will move into San Antonio, and the rookie-level Helena Brewers will take their place in Colorado Springs. This flurry of moves was announced after the Elmore Group finalized plans for a new $45.5 million ballpark in downtown Amarillo. This will mark the first time an affiliated club has called Amarillo home since 1982. 
San Antonio, there's also been a lot of discussion about a new ballpark there. Colorado Springs has a ballpark. It's an older facility that has hosted AAA baseball since the late 80s. Uh, that city will now be a rookie-level city, and Helena, Montana will be without affiliated ball. Sam, your initial reaction to this news? Um, yeah, I, I always felt like San Antonio was a little bit bigger than a double A city, yeah. to be honest with you. So hearing it get the bump, this is something that's kind of been rumored for a few years now, at the very least. Um, just as you were talking, Tyler, I looked up what the populations are uh, for San Antonio and for Colorado Springs. Uh, San Antonio, according to you know this, which who knows if it's how accurate it is on Google right now, but 1.4 million people live in San Antonio. Uh, compare that to 445,000 in Colorado Springs. Um, so in terms of just status, this kind of ticks a box here. Uh, in in terms of just seeing San Antonio there, um, one other thing I wanted to look up was, you know, Colorado Springs has been here, you know, as long as I've been here. So I do think of it as a AAA city, and I wanted to see what the uh, popular or what the attendance was for the Sky Sox this year. They currently rank last. Uh, in average attendance uh, in the Pacific Coast League, averaging 3,902 fans uh, as of this recording. Uh, Omaha is second to last in the PCL with 4,500. So even amongst you know PCL clubs, even be between the bottom rung and the second to bottom rung, there's a, still a sizable chunk there. Um, so you know for for an ownership group that's looking to get into a, a good market that's ready for AAA baseball that is established itself as a really good double a market uh moving to san antonio makes sense there uh it's it it is unfortunate to see springs knocked from triple a all the way down to rookie level and and to see uh helena taken out of the equation completely uh, i'll be re really interested to see how amarillo kind of works itself out I, I know of it as a big texas city um i don't know what exactly what the baseball scene is there uh generally it's it's more exciting when the new team moves in and hopefully that continues uh for the team there uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in that market. Um, so it, a lot of dominoes falling here, and uh, we can talk about it more as you know details come out. And it, it's more fun to talk about new teams, and I get that. Um, seeing how San Antonio is going to play out as a AAA city, whether it's truly worth it. Um, to be honest with you, San Antonio is big enough. It, it might even be in that conversation for major league expansion, but um, I don't think that there's any serious talk about that, and that's many years down the line if it ever comes but um yeah it, you know it, it again unfortunate to see two two teams two solid teams that we've been following for a while uh either eliminated completely or or downsized um but you know we'll have plenty to talk about this offseason in terms of rebranding and um and you know what the new stadiums are going to look like and all of that these teams will not be on the move until after the 2018 season, and uh, the eventual plan is to secure funding for a new ballpark in San Antonio. Wolf Stadium, which currently hosts the AA San Antonio Missions, can hold 9,200 fans, um, but the plan is... Eventually, you'll get a new park there. You'll have a new park in Amarillo. Colorado Springs is going to be still sticking with Security Service Field, which is kind of an interesting situation because the Elmore Group uh, has thrown out some various reasons for this move, one of them being the altitude, although you're going to have a rookie-level team that's going to be playing in the same altitude, so that kind of doesn't really seem to hold that much water. Um, economically, this is a move that's going to make a lot more money for an ownership group, and ownership groups are businesses. I mean, that's what this ultimately comes down to. The city of Colorado Springs had an opportunity and we talk about this a lot when it comes to teams that move there was an opportunity to change this and we had this discussion a lot with bakersfield there were a whole lot of different plans to get a new ballpark put in bakersfield that never came to fruition and that's why that team ended up leaving and shifting over to the carolina league for colorado springs about four years ago there was a proposal from a group to build a new district in kind of a blighted area of Colorado Springs called the City of Champions, which would have been sort of a tourism area, it would have been a, a multi-sport arena, uh, a baseball stadium, and a uh, and United States Olympic Museum. The United States Olympic Committee is headquartered in Colorado Springs. That was never even put up for a public vote. Um, Colorado Springs is a very conservative area. There wasn't a whole lot of movement to put public funding behind something like that. Uh, the backers of that venture then redesigned the stadium aspect of it to make 
data multi-sport um, type of facility as well. There's a successful soccer team in Colorado Springs, the Colorado Springs switchbacks. It could have been part of that as well. Um, but it just never in any way came to fruition. There was no economic momentum behind it. And that left the Sky Sox as a triple-A team in a ballpark that wasn't drawing and is very outdated. And, oh, by the way, had seen the departure of its only parent club since the inception of the major league team 70 miles up the road switch to another affiliate. The Colorado Rockies left after the 2013 season, I believe 2014 season, uh, to switch their affiliation to triple-A Albuquerque better ballpark, much better facility, draw better, all that type of stuff. Um, so for Colorado Springs, this has sort of been in the tea leaves for a while, but I still think somewhat justifiably people in Colorado Springs feel betrayed by this. There is a story from the Colorado Springs Gazette as recently as April 13th in which the Sky Sox were – Having work done on Security Service Field, the lead is workers at Security Service Field replaced about 250 light fixtures hanging above the stadium on Thursday. In the coming months, a revamp of the scoreboard will be completed for roughly $700,000. That will bring high definition to a screen, high definition screen, nearly four times larger than its current size. The Sky Sox are saying they intend to stay in the city, and the $1 million they're pouring into that venue near Barnes & Powers would seem to back that claim. And then a quote from general manager Tony Enzer, we're building for a long future in Colorado Springs. So I think people are upset about this. That may just be a well-couched and very caged phrase. That means they're building for a long future. It just happens to be in the Pioneer League. Um, but, you know, ultimately what this comes down to is new ballpark in Amarillo and aim for a new ballpark in San Antonio. And for the Helena team, comparatively, they're moving into a better facility in Colorado Springs. Um, it's just that, you know, there is a city that's going to be left out of the minor league mix. Helena will no longer have a team, and so that's a bummer for people there. And for people in Colorado Springs, now you get half the games you're used to every summer. Uh, so it's it's just change, and change is a bummer for people who are really invested in these teams. Uh, but, you know, there, there were opportunities for this to not be the case, and unfortunately for these markets, that's not the, the way it goes for Helena losing a team for Colorado Springs taking in a short season team. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, what I'm interested too is just what it's going to be like. Like you mentioned, these aren't going into effect, uh, you know, until after next season, I think, right? Um, so what what is next season going to be like in these places? Is there going to be this great big outpouring of support to try to send off Hel Helena or send off uh, the Skyhawks as a Triple A team, or is it going to be, you know, we all see the end of the road here, and um, you know, people aren't going to show up. I don't, I don't know how that's going to kind of work itself out. The reason, you know, the these announcements need to be made now is to get things set up, to get things moving on stadiums and whatnot. Um, but yeah, what what next year is going to be is going to be uh, fascinating. City of Amarillo is really excited. There is a note in uh, Danny's story from last Wednesday that uh, Amarillo Mayor Ginger Nelson said, quote, this is a win for Amarillo, and as a city, we're thirsty for a win. This gives us something to be unified behind and something to have fun doing together. It'll be a quality of life addition to our city and region. And that kind of sounds like a lot of bureaucratic speak, but – Look at what happened in El Paso. I mean, El Paso was a, a city without a minor league team for a long time. And you think about ballparks and teams and how much impact do they really have. That has been an economic catalyst and has been kind of a, a city spirit catalyst in El Paso. That's maybe the most successful relocation story that we've heard in the last decade plus of minor league baseball. So Amarillo, you hope you can capitalize on that momentum when you're a city that's welcoming in a new team. Uh, Amarillo did host a minor league team from 1939 to 1982. They were primarily known as the Amarillo Gold Sox, and they played at Potter County Memorial Stadium. So this will be 35, 37 years by the time this new team takes up its residence in Amarillo. And those that city seems like it is very excited to be welcoming in the, the newest member, I guess a, a changed member of the Texas League. And so that's an exciting chapter for the city of Amarillo. Yeah, just if you're going to bring up El Paso, and I think that's a great example of how this kind of works. El Paso, I, I threw out attendance numbers before. El Paso is currently third in the PCL in attendance, averaging 7,700 fans. Um, so, you know, what they established a couple of years ago when the Chihuahuas first moved in, uh, we're still riding that momentum, yeah. I think, uh, from that new park. So these things do have effects at the very beginning. Uh, various things play out as the seasons go along, but uh, these can be big moves for new cities. So... That's the uh, the latest from the minor league relocation shuffle, which comes up 
early uh, in 2017. We don't ordinarily hear about this stuff until kind of after seasons have gone past, but uh, it gives one other final note about this. It does give these two cities in Colorado Springs and in Helena ample time for fans to go out and take part in the ballpark, take part in the, the being able to see minor league players at various levels or all together. Uh, we've seen over the last few seasons, Teams middle of the year announce, okay, this is it. We're done after the season. Bakersfield and uh, and High Desert last year come to mind. And then all of a sudden, if you're a fan in that region and you've got a month to go see a team and you can't make it work, that's kind of a bummer. So at least there is that silver lining for fans in Helena and in Colorado Springs. Strike two this week, Sam. The AAA All-Star Game is set for Tacoma, Washington. And we have rosters for the International League and the Pacific Coast League highlighted by a whole lot of talented prospects. Yuan Mankata has been elected the All-Star Game on the International League side. Willie Adamas will join him in the middle infield for the International League. Those are just two of the really exciting names on that side. The Pacific Coast League, also a very exciting member of the middle infield there. Ahmed Rosario of the Las Vegas 51s, the New York Mets organization, has been selected. Who stands out to you on these two AAA rosters? Yeah, so uh, All-Star Games are completely different animals than kind of your normal All-Star, or just your normal roster. You know, I, I like to look at all-star games and I'd like to think about, like, which roster would I prefer? And I think looking at these rosters as they stand right now, I think I might like uh, the IL a little more. You know, you mentioned Mankata and Adamas in the middle infield. Uh, they'll probably be starting together. They were both elected to the team rather than selected, uh, which just means, you know, there's the voting process and where fans chip in, managers chip in, the media chips in, all that kind of stuff. Uh, those two guys were elected with votes uh, to the second base and shortstop. So that's a fascinating double play combination. Uh, but off the bench, guys who were selected uh, were three other top 100 prospects in Jorge Alfaro, uh, Gwinnett second baseman Ozzie Albies, Louisville outfielder Jesse Winker. Uh, the Bash brothers will be there and Reese Hoskins and Dylan Cousins. Both of those guys should be starting at, after some powerful performances for Lehigh Valley. Uh, Zach Granite is just fascinating in the Rochester outfield. Uh, I remember when I was doing a tool shed on what my AAA all-star ballot would look like. He technically was not qualified or didn't have enough at-bats to qualify for the major slash line categories. Uh, since then, he has gotten enough at-bats, and he's hitting 371. Uh, nobody else, no other qualified IL batter is hitting higher than 316, and that is Jesse Winker. So uh, a lot of really interesting bats here, but why... I bring up that all-star games are different animals is because I really like the IL lineup. I think I like the PCL pitching more. Uh, and in spurts when you're trying to get so many pitchers in, a, a lot of them are relievers, guys who are coming in the fifth, sixth, seventh inning, only pitching one inning. Uh, they can go at it with their best stuff. They're, they don't have to worry about carrying things over. Uh, that's why you see, especially lately, a lot of low-scoring all-star games. Uh, pitchers just trying to throw it as hard as they can, really get, uh, go at guys, get aggressive, that whole thing. Um, so looking at the PCL pitching staff, uh, Luke Weaver is the top 100 representative there, you know, pitching out of AAA Memphis. Uh, but Wilmer Font of Oklahoma City uh, currently leads the minors in strikeouts. Uh, he struck out 112 batters in 80 and a third innings at AAA Oklahoma City. Uh, this was a guy who hadn't, didn't have that much experience at the AAA level before this season. Um, is certainly getting it now. You know, he had some stints with the Rangers a couple of years ago here and there, uh, mostly pitched out of the bullpen, moved to starting this year, is showing absolutely terrific swing and miss stuff. Uh, I think he has a chance to to be that PCL starter, um, get them three solid innings. It, it would almost remind me of, you know, how many strikeouts can he get, uh, you know, which is what we think about when we were watching Clayton Kershaw in an all-star game or how I used to think about watching Pedro Martinez in an all-star game. Uh, Wilmer Font could be that for the PCL. So as good as this IL lineup is, uh, I think the arms in the PCL are just have a chance to be so much more dominant. Uh, Drew Steckenrider is a, is a really, really good reliever coming out of New Orleans. Uh, a lot of other names on that list. So uh, we'll see how things play out in Tacoma. Um, you never trying to predict one game can be tough. And, you know, if this was 162 games, I might tell you, uh, take the IL lineup just because it's so solid, both starting and coming off the bench. Um, but for one game, um, just with the arms that they have, I, I'm leaning towards the PCL now. 
maybe I'll change my mind <laughs> the night before if, if some other changes get made. But that's that's my feeling right now. Yeah, no, I think that's right on. I also like that uh, this is being hosted by a Pacific Coast League ballpark this year, but it's the most pitcher-friendly Pacific Coast League ballpark in Tacoma. And so it's not, you know, El Paso a couple years ago or, um, you know, even a ballpark like Las Vegas, theoretically, where you we're expecting to see a 15-11 type of game. I'm excited to see the way that these pitchers will match up with really, really potent lineups. The middle infield on that International League side is really exciting. Yoan Mankata and Willie Adamas, the top prospects in the Chicago White Sox and Tampa Bay Rays organizations, respectively. That's really exciting. Um, but there's a lot of depth and a lot of guys who really kind of stand out on the backside of this International League team that are exciting to me. Guys like Jorge Alfaro, who was selected to the team, not elected to the team. Uh, but some other names that you've kind of forgotten about. Rusny Castillo is on that roster from the Pawtucket Red Sox. A guy who made a whole boatload of money coming out of Cuba with the Boston Red Sox organization. Hasn't quite lived up to that contract yet, but is having a pretty good year this year. Lucas Sims, who I think people have kind of forgotten about in the Atlanta Braves organization, but still has a very bright future ahead of him. If he can harness everything the the triple a all-star game it's a big honor because you're being selected to a roster that is some of the best players at the highest level of minor league baseball it's also yeah you'd rather be you know being a guy who's even riding a bench on a major league roster than being somebody who's playing in the triple a all-star game but i think it provides an opportunity for guys to get one of those little twinges sometimes that you need to take that next step you get put in a spot like that you're around the best of the best at your level and you think you know what i'm good enough to be doing this at the next level and sometimes those carrots throughout the course of a season are really big motivators for production in the second half i mean we saw brendan rogers who we talked to last week on the podcast, Josh Jackson talked to at the California League All-Star Game. The Rockies left him at Class A Advance so he could have that experience before he was promoted. We've seen other guys with that same type of route where you have them play and dominate a level, and then you let them have that honor where they get selected to something like this, and then you hope that the second half benefits from it. So I think that's really cool. But uh, I agree with Sam on the other side. The the lineup on this PCL side is really exciting. Carson Kelly is a guy we've talked to who has a, a very complete approach to the game, the catcher from the St. Louis Cardinals organization who's put together a really good year. Um, what kind of surprises me is that this team isn't just entirely comprised of Colorado Springs, Sky Sox, and Fresno Grizzlies because it feels like we write about them every single night lately to a certain extent with Lewis Brinson and Brett Phillips and Ryan Cordell and all these guys at Colorado Springs. And then with Colin Moran and with Tyler White and with Derek Fisher and all these guys in Fresno, not to say that those people aren't represented uh, with Fresno and Colorado Springs having their selections, but man, there are a ton of fun bats and it shows you how many there are uh, in this organization, in those organizations and others that the PCL roster is lined with so many guys from so many other systems. Yeah, I, I really do have to say about these rosters, too, is that they are legitimately stocked with yeah. talent. Like, this is not us just talking up two rosters that uh, kind of get, yeah, they they are what they are, so we have to talk them up because they're there. They are legitimately talented. I think IL has five top 100 prospects. I haven't counted up the PCL side, but when you got Ahmed Rosario and, uh, you know, Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly and uh, Derek Fisher, you know, they there's plenty of talent there as well. Um and I think that speaks to as well the fact that this is a game that features two leagues. Um, it's not as watered down as some of the all-star games, some of the other all-star games that are kind of just one league. Um, not that that's anything wrong with that. You know, it, it's more fun to see, uh, or you know, some of these levels, double A, class A, advanced. There's only three leagues. Uh, you can't unless you're doing an all-star round robin or something. You can't make that work. So that's why they have intra-league all-star games but when they when you're able to take all of the talent from one league and all of the talent from another that's how you get these really really uh you know star-laden rosters and to see the the big names like Mankata, you know like alfaro albies winker uh hoskins cousins you know on the il side rosario uh on the pcl side actually perform as well as they have and legitimately get their shot um like you said tyler i'm sure they would have loved to have legitimately gotten their shot at the majors by this point, but um, 
know, the fact that they're being rewarded with a trip to Tacoma, they're not going to feel bad about that. And Cheney Stadium in Tacoma is awesome as well. Uh, Wednesday, July 12th at Cheney Stadium. By the way, that game will be nationally televised on MLB Network. Paul Severino will be on the call. I know Jim Cowles is going to be uh, one of the color analysts for that broadcast, so you can check that out on MLB Network July 12th. 2017. All right, Sam, strike three this week. Uh, we talked about the the Brewers in a couple of different contexts. Parent club to Akeem in Colorado Springs in our uh, first uh, segment today, and also uh, the team in Helena, oddly enough. Second segment, a lot of talent on that roster headed to the AAA All-Star game. And in segment number three, we're going to compare – that organization with another one that looks very similar. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the first place Milwaukee Brewers call a lot of their top talent to the major leagues. Josh Hader got uh, his major league call up the first one of his career. Lewis Brinson the same way. Brett Phillips the same way. These names that we've been watching for a long time in that organization finally get their look at the major league level. Brandon Woodruff, friend of the podcast as well. The Oakland Athletics have started to go that way as well. And really, it feels like it's been about the last 10 days or so, but we've seen so many names jump to the big leagues from this talented AAA Nashville roster. Franklin Barreto is up there, Jacob Brugman, Matt Olson, Ryan Healy, all these guys that we've talked about throughout the early going of this season and calling them all up simultaneously. It's really similar to what the Brewers did. Some of those guys are back in AAA now, but uh, I had a conversation a couple of nights ago with Rick Sweet, who's the manager of the AAA Colorado Springs Sky Sox, and asked him, what does it do for these guys when they all get up together? a taste of that together even if they're not necessarily already right now they're all up there and experiencing it at the same time and he said what it does is if they don't have a lot of success in the the case of somebody like Lewis Brinson went up struggled a little bit in his major league debut when they get back to Colorado Springs it makes them hungry to get back there because they've had that taste of what it's like in the major leagues and not only that but it shows them what they need to do and what they need to accomplish to get to the big leagues and stick and the A's seem to be very much in that same mode right now with all these guys who are up in Oakland maybe they're not going to stay there maybe we'll see them back in Nashville uh, relatively soon but it doesn't seem like they'll be there for long it's cool to see the way that organizations have really been very trusting of prospects in this regard yeah for sure and the situations are obviously a little different uh the brewers are very much in that nl central race um you know i think they lead the the cubs by uh right now one game so you know nobody would have seen that at the beginning of the year but when they decided they needed help you know in their outfield they had a couple roster spots where they needed help in the bullpen um with hater uh or they needed help in the rotation with Woodruff. They're just like, you know what? We're going to go for it. This is this is us. You know, we know we have the talent at the AAA level. Uh, let's use it now. Let's try to make something of this run that we have and this opportunity that we have. Uh, the A's aren't quite the same way. They're currently 16 and a half games out in the uh, the AL West. But as everybody kind of knows, that the American League this year is still pretty much wide open in a way that the National League is very much not. Um, everybody's within striking distance relatively of that second AL wild card spot. Um, so, you know, the, the A's are not punting by any means by bringing these guys up, but what they are doing is trying to see what they have. You know, uh, I, I thought they were going to bring up Franklin Barreto, who's the, by far and away probably their top prospect. I thought they were going to bring him up maybe after the trade deadline because Jed Lowry has been pretty well established in the middle of their infield this year. Uh, having a really solid season, he's got an OPS plus this year of 127. Looks like perfect trade bait uh, for that Oakland team. And whenever he got traded out, you know, Barreto slides in pretty well there. Uh, but they decided to do it even earlier. Um, so they bring up Barreto, give him some time at second base. Uh, before that, they brought up Matt Chapman, who is currently on the DL with a very unfortunate knee infection. Uh, but he was another guy, a friend of the podcast, who was absolutely destroying uh, the baseball in, in Nashville. Uh, he had 16 homers in 49 games, got to carry that uh, to the majors. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate the stumbles he's had, but at least they were willing to give him a shot. And, the, you know, third base job is probably his again when he gets back and healthy. Uh, Matt Olson, kind of fun to see him get a spot. He's, he's been their uh, go-to right fielder to these first couple games. Showing normal Matt Olson things in, in Oakland. Uh, he's homered twice in 11 games, so showing a, a decent amount of pop. But he's also struck out 12 times and walked seven times. So that three true outcome stuff that he's always shown at the other levels 
uh, is still there. And they're just feeling it out. You know, maybe these guys are the, the talent that they need to push to the next level. Maybe, you know, they, they claw their way back within five games or so of the AL wild card and they earn a chance to go for it, try to keep Lowry in the second half. Or maybe they're just getting experience right now. They're, they're you know, like you said, um, getting that taste of the major league level, knowing what it takes to get there, knowing what it takes to con- succeed there. Uh, so even if they do get sent back to, down to Nashville, it's with specific instructions. You know, I was made vulnerable in this way. What do I need to do to make sure that doesn't happen uh, when I get that call again? Um, so it's, it's really fascinating. I think it works well with these two systems, with the Brewers and the A's, just because they are so top heavy in terms of the talent. You know, a lot of their best uh, prospects were at AAA to begin with. That makes it so much easier uh, in ways that we aren't necessarily talking about with other systems. Uh, maybe the Yankees are maybe the next team to do that. They brought up Tyler Wade this week, uh, a really good speedster in the middle infield. Uh, we know that they have other names there as well as in Clint Frazier and Justice Sheffield is getting better. And Chance Adams looks like he's ready to break through for a major league debut. So uh, it, it is semi-rare to have this much talent at AAA. Uh, but when you have it, it's it's been real fun to see teams dip into it when they need it and not just saying, no, 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 you'll wait your turn. Um, even surprising us with how quickly they're bringing up these guys. I think you hit the nail on the head. You get exposed at the major league level to a certain extent if you are most guys. If you're Cody Bellinger, maybe you don't. Um, But that's what players have to learn, have to look out for, and have to understand when they get back to the minor leagues is it's the last step, and it's the most difficult step for a reason. And if I'm able to absorb the things that teams were able to exploit about me at the major league level – that's what I need to work on. That's what I need to conquer at AAA. And then I can go back and hopefully it'll be the start of a long and productive major league career. Um, but it's really cool that all of these guys are able to get these opportunities at the same time. And so many of these different organizations that are testing these players all at the major league level, even if it's, you know, I mean, in the A's circumstance in that division right now, it's one thing. The Brewers are a first place team. They've been leading that division the majority of the year, and they're not the best team in the National League right now, but the fact that they're willing to do it really speaks a lot to the faith they have in those players as well. So it's pretty cool, and we've talked about it a lot, um, just the the fact that major league organizations seem to have so much trust in young prospects who have moved quickly through the minor leagues now than maybe they would have 10 years ago, Um, but it's really fun it's really exciting especially for those of us on the prospect side to watch guys go up get a chance head back to the minor leagues in some circumstances and and try to finish off those last few things that you have to polish away at AAA. that'll do it for this week's edition of three strikes on episode number 116 of the show before the show podcast and coming up we're going to head to the double a binghamton rumble ponies we will hear from the headman of that squad, a talented team this year in the New York Mets organization. Luis Rojas will join the show to talk about Double A Binghamton and more coming up next. So as Tyler just explained, uh, I was up at in Hartford on Monday to do a couple things, mostly to see Brendan Rodgers' debut uh, or home debut with Double A Hartford. Um, But while I was there, I wanted to catch up with somebody on the Binghamton Rumble Ponies and Luis Rojas, their manager, uh, was a perfect candidate. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Rojas is the son of famed manager Felipe Alou, uh, patriarch of the Alou family. So we talked a little bit about that, what what it's like to kind of come from, uh, you know, that family tree. Uh, but also, what exactly is Rojas's managing style? I feel like that's not something we get to talk about too much in terms of, uh, you know, how do you manage at certain levels? He's hit up pretty much every level in the Met system, uh, from the GCL to, you know, back when their Class A affiliate was with Savannah, uh, on through Class A Advanced St. Lucie, and now with Binghamton. And then we touched on a couple of uh, names uh, that you'll hear about in a couple minutes, uh, all of whom are now Eastern League All-Stars. Uh, so it was a really, really fun interview, a really fun talk with Luis Rojas in Hartford, and here it begins right now. Yeah, so one thing I'm kind of interested in talking to you about is just climbing the ladder as a manager, you know, this being your first double-A year. You know, what is the biggest adjustment as you go up the chain, going between different levels? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it's just more, you know, it keeps the, ba- the baseball experience building up, I mean, right? The difference between this and you know, the previous league that I was in, you know, which is the Florida State League, right. is the uh, National League game. So you run into that, and, and uh, you know, you run into that. 
that you're hitting with the double switch strategy and uh, uh, you know having the depth of your bench and uh, having guys to learn to play different positions too uh, once they get here because that's what you know we're kind of like doing uh, right now we have guys playing you know uh, infielders playing the three positions you know on the left side we have guys that uh, in the outfield that be playing first we have a catcher here that plays like more other mm -hmm. more that plays first. Uh, second and left, also a little bit of third. So that's, that's just kind of like the difference that I see from the past level to this one. And then, you know, before that, it's just uh, the experience of the players. I mean, you see a, a little bit more uh, polished player, you know, because of the couple of years they already spent in their uh, system with different organizations. And it's just the repetitions that they've been getting in games, you know, for the other leagues. Right. It makes them, you know, polished. So it's you kind of like see that a little bit. It's not, you know, necessarily like a big, big change or a big, you know, from one level to another. But you see a little bit more of uh, guys making the routine plays and the game kind of like moving, uh, you know, more fluidly. Mm -hmm. But uh, not much like big to me that I really experienced myself. Mm -hmm. And how much does it kind of help having come up the system yourself with some of these guys, having coached some of them at St. Lucie last year? Um, you know, going through that with them at the same time, it's a new level for all well, of it, it helps a lot because they know, they know me, they know my personality, they know, uh, you know, the way I expect things to be, and uh, it makes a lot, you know, things a lot easier. Uh, you know, it just takes a chunk of time of, you know, that pro process and trying to, you know, maybe learn your coach, learn your manager and what, what the expectations are, and uh, so it helps a lot, you know, having more than 50% of the group, uh, you know, already played for you before. It's, it's just, you know, makes the whole team click a little bit more because players start communicating between them and, you know, letting each other know uh, what kind of manager, what, you know, how the manager reacts or expects out of, out of uh, you know, each individual in there. And then, you know, of course, there's always that communication between the coach, manager, and player. But uh, then having the experience of being, you know, around me before, it, it just, you know, takes a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of that time that we could like probably probably spend, you know, knowing each other and kind of like getting acclimated to uh, being being together for the first time. Mm -hmm. And when you, we were talking before about this being your first time here, do you guys get like a scouting report on how a park is going to play before you get in it? Well, we, we, we don't get it. We actually go and dig in uh, and look for how it plays, and uh, we of course see the uh, scores and it calls attention. And you also hear. It. From other teams, you know, you know, you know other teams, players and uh, managers, and you know, you ask the questions, how's the park and how's everything. We always got very good reviews on how this park. Talking about this park specifically here in Hartford, how this park plays and how beautiful it was. And uh, so you get here and you're surprised of you know the great job that they did to build the new ballpark, but you already know because you've heard of what, uh, how the ballpark plays and that you already go also to see how the stats play here as well. And it kind of like helps you a little bit on what to expect uh, and uh, maybe, you know, also to make a decision during the game about it. Mm -hmm. And just to go back to managing and coming up that way, how would you kind of describe your managing style and how it's evolved, you know, as you go up? Well, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's, it keeps growing up. It keeps maturing, you know, as the, as the years go by and as the games that I've, I'm a part of go by and uh, uh, you know, but it, it's really tough to describe this at least from my end. Really tough to describe a manager's uh, you know style or something. And it's, it's usually what you get as a team is what it's going to dictate on how you're going to run your team. You know, if you get a fast team, you're going to be an aggressive manager. You're going to run. You get a team that has power and can swing it. You probably be a little bit more patient and uh, you know let the guys swing it a little bit and and. It's the same thing with what kind of starting pitching you have and what, what kind of depth in the relief that you have, you know, lefty righties. If you can do mashup, if you can do uh, a lot of different things during the game. So this obviously of what the product, of what the kind of players you have, that on my end dictates on how what kind of manager you're going to be for that team that you uh, that you have in that particular season. So that's that's kind of like what I go. Of. I study with the team I have. I started with my product, and uh, of course we started the opposing teams, and we bring up a strategy. Uh, each time. What was the biggest piece of advice you got from your dad, either when you were starting or throughout the years? Since <laughs> I got in so much, but uh, you know, I think one of the things that I learned the most uh, from my dad is really the patience. You know, and uh, you know, be able to 
uh, really have a good reason behind every decision uh, that's made out there and make sure I anticipate, you know, about as many steps ahead uh, as I can be in a situation, you know, and, uh, you know, from watching, from having conversations, and that's, that's a, probably one of the things that I picked up that helped me the most in my coaching managing career out uh, uh, of him, you know, always being there, always uh, being able to bring up the uh, baseball conversations and different situations, conversations, you know, that I can always get something uh, from his experience and I can like compare it from my own experience as well and, uh, and come up with something. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's helped me in a lot of, in a lot of different ways and uh, it's tough to come up with a single one. It's just so many, but uh, the patient and, and, you know, just being able to anticipate way, way ahead uh, because of how many surprises, how many failures this game, this game can bring to you. I think that's what, that's probably the best thing that I've learned. From. How much or how often are you guys talking baseball? Uh, well, every time we are on the phone or every time we meet in person, we talk baseball. I mean, uh, you know, we work in different organizations where we're trying to beat each other, you know, <laughs> in a, in, you know as an organization in, in, in the big leagues. But, you know, we always debate on just different scenarios, on uh, you know, different things that happens in baseball. And, uh, you know, I manage winter ball as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we always bring up different situations. and. Uh, like I don't get second guess or anything, you know, by him with all with all the experience, managing experience that he has. But uh, rather than that, I, you know, I do I do get advices or uh, or if he was in a similar situation, what he did, you know, which is a normal conversation between managers. I think uh, you know not only had to be that and son, but but manager to manager type of conversation. So uh, we're pretty often on the phone, and you know, the baseball conversation is always on. And just to turn to players, uh, Luis Guillorme, I feel like I've seen so many defensive highlights of his, but what makes him such a strong defender of the middle, whether it's at second or short? Well, besides his, you know, I think his, uh, his ability to read uh, opposing hitters, uh, he's got a really good baseball IQ instinct, and uh, he always positions himself well. He's paying attention to uh, those little things that are not so little, you know, of the game, and, uh, and that makes him always puts him in a good position to make plays. And then his confidence level is just off the chart. He's a kid that plays with extreme confidence. He's always, you know, uh, ready to make a play, ready to help the team, uh, you know, out there on the, on the defensive end, even regardless of how it's going for him on the offensive end. So I think his focus is always elevated, you know, either playing short, second, and uh, when he tries third base too, because we're gonna try him at third okay. uh, at one point, we need to we need to get in there to get in the experience because he's gonna be that guy that uh, that can play all three positions on the left side of the infield and be very valuable, you know, in the team. So I think his focus level is always high, and uh, you know, he's a guy that's always gonna be a, give his hundred percent regardless of on how he's doing on the plate. And how is he kind of taken to being kind of behind Rosario, kind of in the depth chart, you know, being one level below him, but it's. You know, primary position being shortstop. How does that kind of play out? Well, uh, you know, it's, I, I, that's a conversation we'd never had, uh, and I don't think I never heard him talk about it either. It's, it's you know, he's been teammates of Rosario. He played second where Rosario was playing uh, short last year in, uh, in in San Lucie for me, and there was no, it was never a subject, you know, that we that we had about it. He always went. Uh, the same way he goes about his business uh, this year, even though he was playing next to uh, Rosario last year. So I don't, I don't think it's something that is really affects him on how he plays or or he knows that he can't control. So, you know, it's it's, it's really something that doesn't come up at all. all right. And tonight's starter with Conlon. Uh, you know, he seems to be a guy who can just eat up innings for you guys. I think he has two shutouts on the year. What makes him so effective from the left side, given his size, given, I think he's below six feet? You know, how does he make that work for him? Well, he's, he's a strike thrower, and, uh, you know, he's, he's not afraid to challenge any hitter with his fastball, despite having a plus changeup. Uh, not afraid to use his changeup in any count. And he's a guy that's, you know, he, he's, he pitches to get action. He pitches to get you out in one, you know, three or less pitches. So. Uh, he's got a lot of pitchability. That's why he earned the award of Pitcher of the Year last year in the organization, and, uh, uh, and that's why he's been able to go, you know, deep in, into games. You know, he's got a lot of innings already uh, in this season. It's just of how effective he is, commanding all his pitches, and uh, how eager he is of 
you know, getting you out uh, via contact. Uh, he's being able to strike out a lot of guys. Is you know, due to getting ahead and getting into account, and he's been a lot better getting that put out pitch, bouncing the ball, and uh, being able to get the guys out. And I think he's up in the you know strikeout leaderboard, maybe the first top top five or something, mm -hmm. which is you know surprising because he's a guy that goes deep into the game, like you said, and uh, a guy that strike out a lot of people don't really get into a seven inning or a six, but it does have two shutouts and. Uh, you know, he's been able to keep his pitch count down and uh, being able to get out uh, early in counts as well. And the last guy I want to touch on was Tomas Nito. You know, he cut down his strikeout rate last year with you guys. I think won the FSL batting championship. Yeah. What adjustments did he make last year and how have those carried over into this year? Well, last year he had a rough uh, beginning of the season in, in, in Florida State League. He was basically uh, not having a good start because of the strike zone discipline. He wasn't very disciplined at the plate. He was chasing a lot of pitches and uh, that was that was something that we got together as a coaching staff and sat him down and talked about it and said, listen, if, if you don't really trim uh, you know, your strike zone and you focus on, on the pitches that you need to uh, look for that are going to you know, make you uh, drive the ball better, then you, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, he's got the ability to put the bat in the ball. I mean, uh, really, really good ability to do that, and he could be out in one pitch by chasing a, a, a ball and making contact, put it in play, but it'd be a weak contact and you know, run into an out. So we told him that listen, you got to trim the strikes and you got to look for pitches that you can drive and anything else, just let it go. And uh, he was so good at doing that that from you know later in May to the end of the season, he really uh, bumped his average up. You know, to win the, the, the Florida State League batting title. And now this year, you know, at the beginning, he had kind of like the same start, and we have a similar talk, and, uh, you know, he bumped that up back again, but right now we're still working on it. I mean, he's, he's, he's in another league where pitchers are uh, earned their way to be in this league because they command pitches better, and they're going to, if they see him chase, they're going to make him chase more and more. So we're working on, you know, making him more consistent uh, on staying with his approach so he gets back on track where we want. And I'll leave you with this one. What's it like being the, the Rumble Ponies manager? What's the reaction been the first couple months to being the Rumble Ponies? Well, it's uh, <laughs> it's been it's been actually you know a pleasure to work for you know this ownership and uh, the new brand. Uh, so a lot of good things, a lot of new things are happening, and uh, uh, you know the, the, the guys are excited for all the gear. And uh, you know sometimes we hear we hear. People are trying to make fun of the names, but you know, it's, there's some history behind the name, and we respect it so much, and it has to do with our ownership as well. So, you know, everyone here is proud to be wearing the union and carrying the name and the brand. To the Pioneer League slash Pacific Coast League slash Mountain Time Zone, we go where we find Benjamin Hill, who is on the road which is a, uh, a familiar uh, tag to the end of Ben's name once we get to these points of the minor league season. Hi, Ben. Where are you? Hi, guys. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Sam. I'm in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, the home of the bees. I will be seeing the Salt Lake City bees tonight, and I'm talking to you here on uh, Tuesday. Wednesday. Wednesday, right? Wait, what day is it, Wednesday. guys? It is Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay. It's, it's right. Wednesday in the East Coast. I don't know what it is in your fancy mountain time zone. It's YouTube, actually next but. year. Yeah, who knows? Talk to Tyler. It's 2018. <laughs> yeah, it's like 2019 or something. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. Um, so it's Wednesday, and uh, I saw the Ogden Raptors last night and drove into Salt Lake after the game. And so I'm spending the last three nights of this trip in Salt Lake uh, seeing the Bees tonight. And the Bees are the uh, you know, AAA Pacific Coast League. That's the only non-Pioneer League team I'm seeing. And then uh, tomorrow I'll close things out with the Orem Owls uh, and then fly – Back home on Friday. So this whole trip, when it's all said and done, will be eight teams, seven in the Pioneer League, one in the Pacific Coast League, and uh, missing the teams in Colorado, which we've yeah, talked about in the past. And, you know, as we've also talked about, 
Yeah, it's the goal is to avoid Taliban yeah, no, at fine. all costs. He's kind of got a toxic energy. I'm trying to stay away from. I, w- I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, ben, tell us about the the stop so far. You've been in the thing that I love when you check out Ben'sBiz.mlblogs.com is that you see a lot of blue skies, a lot of cloudless blue skies. Um, so the weather has obviously cooperated throughout the Pioneer League so far. But you've been to Billings, Great Falls, Helena, Missoula, Idaho Falls, Ogden. Give us a rundown of what it's been like in kind of one of the the quieter leagues on the minor league landscape? Uh, definitely one of the quieter leagues. I, I would suggest that uh, general managers of the Pioneer League um, have a seminar this offseason about how to respond to emails better because it's been a little <laughs> tough, uh, you know, just uh, coordinating with the teams and all that. But that said, I love um, getting here. This is the, the Pioneer League is the last league I've yet to set foot in. This will be the last trip I ever take, um, you know, here in the world of affiliated baseball where every single stop is new a place I haven't been. So it's been really interesting. I flew into Billings and, uh, you know, kind of worked my way through Montana and then into Idaho, now Utah. And you're right, the weather has cooperated fully, knock on wood. I got two more games left. Um, the, you know, they call it big sky country in Montana, and that is very, very apt. There were, you know, several times I would just would pull off at a scenic lookout point or even a rest stop and just look around me and be like, oh, my goodness, it's just beautiful. Some of this Lewis and Clark territory, you know, known historically for uh, their 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 trip and, uh, you know, establishing new territory for our great United States. You know, so we, a lot of it is along uh, along uh, the route that they have uh, that they first uh, traversed. And, uh, just gorgeous woods and uh, sky and plains and just a, a sense of openness that, you know, coming from New York City and growing up in Pennsylvania that is just kind of foreign to me. So it's great to be out here. Yeah, my question was going to be, uh, Ben, you said you made it to the Snake River. So did you actually ford the river or did you cock it and decide to float across? Oh, no, I ended up waiting for conditions. Yeah, <laughs> it's you didn't good see Oregon my tweet, trail. but I ended up waiting for conditions to. Yeah, I waited for uh, I ended up waiting for conditions to improve. <laughs> oh, and, uh, see. Well, you know, I just took the took the slow route and there was so no that, Indian guy. What's, what's the dysentery situation? So that's what you there did was, on your There day was off. a there there was I don't, I don't think they had this um you know, during the Oregon Trail days, but I was right by a Buffalo Wild Wings oh. um, on the Snake River. And I don't think the pioneers had that luxury. So I actually while deciding what to do, how to get across the Snake River, I actually went to a would have made a lot easier for the pioneers had the buffaloes actually had wings back then and then you wouldn't have had to ford any rivers well they went extinct you know that's another thing that we kind of have on our our american conscience is we killed all the flying buffalo but it lives on with buffalo wild wings and i did get a half lemon pepper and half hot wings and uh, (laughs) while i debated how to cross the snake river I was going to say, I think there were some uh, winged buffalo in, in the uh, game I played growing up, but I think that was just bad graphics on my elementary school computers. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Ben, was your on-the-road piece uh, about the Great Falls uh, historian Jim Eakland. Uh, Pioneer League teams, I don't usually think of as, as teams with these deeper histories or something like that, but this team has a historian. So we'll take us through your conversation, your story with him. Right. Well, Great Falls, the Voyagers, um, the second stop on my trip, that was uh, one of my favorite stops so far. Um, they're just a team that from my you know, New York City base of operations, I just haven't had much occasion to cover them from the larger top-down you know, industry perspective. So going there, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and uh, you know, got a great response from the team, and I showed up. And it's, it's an old stadium, uh, Centene Stadium. Um, an old stadium that's been around for a while, you know, it had presents some operational challenges. It has had some renovations over the last decade plus to, uh, you know, make it more amenable to today's game, but I just didn't know what to expect. So I show up, I talk to the GM, Scott Reasoner, really nice guy. And he says, Hey, you know, you're going to want to talk to Jim and there's Jim, this octogenarian in a blue Hawaiian shirt. And he's just like, let's do it. And all of a sudden, you know, five minutes from entering the ballpark, I'm in Jim Eakland's, uh, you know, curated baseball museum that he has on the second level of the stadium. And the history of baseball in Great Falls goes back to 1892, which I did not know. And their Pioneer League history goes back decades, and there were some gaps in it here and there. But he has this room um, full of team photos, win-loss records, rosters, memorabilia, everything from old scoreboard numbers to seat cushions to pennants to pocket schedules. And it's a small room, but it's really well curated. And, uh, yeah, I talked to Jim for quite a while and uh, didn't did an article on him and you know he just uh, it's great you know his whole thing was 
you know, I retired in 1991 and he was a widowed or became a widower a short time after. And he said, you know, my mother always said to me, when you're retired, you need something to do every day. And uh, so for him, that became identifying every player on the year by year Great Falls minor league baseball team photos. And uh, his collection and his work through that led to the creation of this Hall of Fame room. And now here at the stadium, any fan, it's open an hour before game time, can stop in and learn a lot about the history and, and talk to Jim and just one of those cool minor league quirks and cool minor league personalities that really help bring a ballpark to life. Um, well, well, one thing I wanted to kind of get into, too, is just it seems like you were talking about the views on this trip, but, um, you know, specifically some of the ballparks you're going to see. I know Salt Lake Bees today have already talked a little trash saying you're going to see the best view in baseball today. Um, you said you had it in Ogden before that. Um, you know, what? where exactly are these parks situated, you know, as you're going through the mountains of the, you know, some of these states? You know, honestly, I don't know the geography in and out. I just kind of drive, show up, and I'm like, wow, this is what it looks like. I, I have, I'm just always trying to keep my head above water on these trips, so I often don't have the greatest sense of where I fall in the greater landscape. Um, every environment has been pretty scenic, you know, on this trip so far, but it really is, uh, you know, culminating here with these teams in Utah. Um, Ogden last night, there's three mountains you know, just enveloping the ballpark. They feel like they're looming right over the ballpark. Uh, I believe that's the Wasatch Mountain Range, and there's three different mountains. Uh, one of them, the one on the left field side, is allegedly the inspiration for the Paramount Studios logo. Yeah, that was an interesting But at idea. any rate, yeah, it's um, Ben Lamond Mountain, and I'm not sure of the history there, but apparently, uh, you know, an Ogden native, uh, you know, pitched that uh, – the Paramount Studios logo, and he was from Ogden, and kind of you know used that as his uh, inspiration. It's one of those stories that's maybe not 100% confirmed, but if you look at it, you're like, hey, why not? That could be the Paramount <laughs> Mountain logo. <laughs> and uh, um, but it, it's such a striking environment. And then heading on to Salt Lake Beach tonight, which is again going to be right there in the mountains, and then Orem as well, right in the mountains. So you know, beautiful landscapes throughout the Pioneer League, and beautiful drives from place to place. But it's here in Utah where you're really struck immediately by the beauty of it. So uh, I really enjoyed that in Ogden last night and looking forward to it tonight in Salt Lake and tomorrow and in Orem. One of the things that um, you probably more than anybody in the country knows is that each minor league sort of has its own feel, sort of has its own identity in the, the leagues in the Southeast are different from the leagues in the Midwest and those types of things. In the Pioneer League, what would you say stands out? I mean, they're, they're small ballparks. They're in small towns for the most part um, and smaller crowds from market to market comparatively just because the ballparks are smaller what kind of feels like it's the identity of the Pioneer League compared to maybe some of the other rookie level or short season leagues you've been to? Well, you know, I did that trip last year that was the entirety of the Appalachian League. So I think that's the most uh, you know, comparable example, obviously, in terms of the market sizes and in terms of the level of play. In a sense, I found that the Appalachian League was maybe even more, uh, you know, down home and even more uh you know community oriented and not many employees and, and all that uh but the pioneer league certainly has that as well you know i started in missoula uh no i did not i started in billings and that's what i meant to say it's it's hard to keep track of myself here uh but they have a park that opened just in 2008 with a 360 degree concourse and it's kind of like the greenville astros of the pioneer league where there's kind of a more modern environment but that also means it's not to, it didn't have as much personality and uh you know missoula is another newer ballpark and a great environment, but, you know, a newer one, uh, you know, but Great Falls and Helena, um, you know, really hold her ballparks. And, and being in Helena, um, actually on the first home game after it became official that they're losing their team after the 2018 season um, was, you know, made me think like, wow, you know, I'm really glad that I'm getting here when I have the chance. And I would recommend anyone, I know, I don't know where you're listening to this, listeners, but if you can get to Helena, Montana this season or next season to see a Brewers game, I would really recommend it. It's a wooden grandstand. It's a, uh, you know, kind of a beat up old ballpark, but the kind of environment that once it's gone, it's not going to come back and really enjoyed getting to know the fans there and seeing how the front office operates and uh, really just a sense of Americana and a throwback feel that um, I just found really warm and kind of touching just to be around and uh, sad that it's no longer going to be there. I mean, I kind of understand why, but that doesn't make it any harder for the people that love a team like that. So Helena, I think, was probably the highlight of this trip so far. And uh, one last one I wanted to touch on with you, Ben, was you're going to Salt Lake tonight or you're going to see the Bees tonight. Uh, a lot of the teams we've talked about, pretty much every team we've talked about has been rookie level. Then you're jumping straight to AAA. 
Is there any kind of whiplash when that happens when you're going from a rookie level park to a to a triple A park like that and back to a rookie level park in Orem where you're finishing the trip? Yeah, absolutely. Like as I said, last year I did like an all Appalachian League trip and this year this trip has been mostly Pioneer League. But a lot of the trips I have done, you know, have been just in a region where you do see that jump from league to league and level of play to level of play from night to night and it can be jarring. You know, I think of being in North Carolina and seeing Durham Bulls and also being able to see like the Burlington you know, the Burlington club in the Appy league, the Royals and, uh, you know, have those in such close proximity to each other yet such different environments. So, uh, I don't know what tonight's going to be like, but after hey, be like, I'm seeing the bees, so whatever. Um, it, it is, uh, after six pioneer league teams, uh, it probably will be a little bit of whiplash to now all of a sudden be at the highest level of play in a stadium that probably seats, you know, a good three to four times as many people as some of these pioneer league environments I've been in. It will be whiplash. It will be disorienting, but I'm a professional and I'm, I'm going to get, he is it. Benjamin Hill. You can find him on Twitter at Ben's biz and you can check out the blog where, by the way, the groundbreaking subversive ballpark jokes of the day have returned despite the demise of vine. And I'm very happy about that. That's Ben's Smith's ballpark tonight in Salt Lake and uh, all the, the all the best of the Pioneer League in your one stop on the PCL, Ben. I hope the, the last couple of days out in America's favorite and most forgotten time zone treat you very well. Yeah, it's great to be in the mountain time zone. Uh, much respect to everyone who lives here because it, it, it's very easy to forget about. But here in the mountain time zone, good people, good views. Tyler, keep fighting the good fight. And, yes, please, I already got blog posts up on Ben's Biz blog. There's going to be a lot more where that came from on the blog, a lot more articles on MILB.com all through July. You can read about this trip, and I hope you do. I appreciate every single person that does, and I mean that. And I'm, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just been on the road. I'm getting very, very emotional sentimental. right now. But thank you for reading my stuff. It's thank good. you for talking. Know, yeah, yeah very you. sentimental. Maybe it's a mountain time zone. It thing, is. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, everyone who engages with my stuff. And I look forward to talking to you from New York City next week where I'll be much colder <laughs> and more cynical. Big thanks to Luis Rojas and Benjamin Hill for joining episode number 116 of the show before the show. Ben will be back in town in New York next week, as he said, and that will just about do it for this week's episode. There was a promotion in the minor leagues that you may have heard about this week that we forgot to address in our first segment, so we'll address it here before we get out of here. Um, one, Timothy Richard Tebow is promoted from the Class A Columbia Fireflies to the Class A Advanced St. Lucie Mets, the New York Mets organization. Not going to spend a ton of time on this, but Sam obviously was a big news item. In your mind, one sentence to describe this promotion. He needed to be tested and, you know, given his age, he needed to be tested and he's going to be tested in an offensive star Florida State League. Uh, I, I wanted to put a sudden seconds on there. <laughs> Go for it. Just very quickly. Obviously, it's, it's great for business that Tim Tebow is back in Florida. Um, so there you go. There's a second sentence. Okay. Um... Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically what I would have said. Uh, I would have said something along the lines of, he's 29, comma, and 29-year-olds need to prove more to an organization than batting in the 220s in the South Atlantic League, semicolon. Also, he makes teams a lot of money, period. This would have definitely <laughs> been a lot more fun if we had done haikus. <laughs> I think. That would have been good. Maybe next time. Maybe next time we talk about yeah, promotion in, in short order. What are you watching this week on MILB.TV? Yeah, so I, I've been waiting to feature uh, one of these games for a while just because it's such a foreign concept to us. There's an actual Florida State League game on MILB.TV now. Um, the Bradenton Marauders have an MILB.TV set up, so get your chance to watch them. I mean, if you if you got a... If you are a fan of a Florida State League team or have a major league team that has an affiliate in the FSL, uh, try to find out when they will be in Bradenton. You'll be able to watch them on your computer. Um, so if you're you know, a St. Lucie Mets fan or a Tebow fan, that's that'll be your chance as well. Uh, but the St. Lucie Mets are not in Bradenton this weekend. The, the matchup I'm looking at uh, is this Friday. The Florida Firefrogs will be in Bradenton. I pick Friday specifically because uh, Tuki Toussaint will be taking the mound for the Firefrogs. Um, I think he's somebody that a lot of people using, you know, your regular stats, I think he's not having that great a year. 5.72 ERA is certainly going to point you in that direction. The 2-8 and eight record, uh, win-loss record, is going to point in that direction as well. Um, but let me just point out that he has a 3.87 FIP, 
Um, so there is a lot of funkiness going on with his numbers. A 3.87 FIP is pretty solid. I think that we would all think he's continuing on his road of development if that was his ERA. Um, he's averaging almost 10 strikeouts per nine innings, uh, striking out 24.4% of batter's face. Uh, so that fastball and wicked curveball combination is still on from him. Uh, you always want to see that curveball whenever you get a chance. Uh, so not only he, him, but he's going up against uh, Pirates' first rounder from last year, Will Craig, who has ter- really turned it on here in June. Uh, he's batting 347 with a 953 OPS in 20 games in June for Bradenton. That should be a fun matchup. Uh, a couple other you know, guys on the Fire Frogs and the Marauders to watch in that game. But, uh, yeah, in terms of an FSL, MILB.TV game, this is about as good as one as you're going to find. So uh, take the opportunity when you have it. I'm going to go to the AA Eastern League in the Cleveland Indians organization where Bobby Bradley, the first base prospect, has started to crush the ball as of late. Uh, the month of June, fantastic for him. A 301, 389, 614 slash line. He had seven homers going into June. He hit seven homers in June. He drove home 22 runs in the month of June. He and the AA Akron Rubber Ducks will take on the Erie Sea Wolves on Thursday, and then they will host the Bowie Bay Sox over the weekend. So you you can check those games out from beautiful Canal Park in Akron, Ohio on MILB.TV. And that'll do it for episode number 116 of the Show Before the Show podcast. Again, you can find us on iTunes, the Stitcher app, and now on Google Play. And you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. You can get in touch with the show, podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykstra, MILB, and I am at Tyler Mon. For Sam, I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.